In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask that you help us to understand what a simple concept is of discipleship, which is our subject of today. We understand the word, but do, you, do we really understand the meaning? So help us to open our minds and our hearts so that we understand what it is that you want us to hear and understand. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. <coughs> Last week we talked a little bit about Jesus' early life, which we know very little about, about except for what we hear in Matthew and Luke's Gospel. There is no written records of what God uh, or Jesus did during that particular time of about approximately 30 years. And we know that uh, 30 years is uh, the right amount of time before he started his public uh, ministry. Because in that culture of that time period, uh, a person was not really accepted as being serious or mature enough or educated enough until he was around the age of 30. Similar to the way we look at our coming of age around 21. Of course, so, some people never come of age until they're, you know, 42 or 63 or whatever. Uh, but nevertheless, and then we have to give credit for some young people who are very mature much before that. But nevertheless, you know, it's it's an artificial uh, passage of time, but that's the way it was in this culture, uh, 30. And that's why uh, we believe that Jesus died when he was approximately uh, 33, because there are three different Passovers mentioned in the various Gospels. Uh, so that would imply that his public life uh, was approximately three, three years, give or take a little. Uh, but the early life, uh, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, I've, as I said, I think one time before, uh, that I saw one of these Hollywood movies that implied and, and really said emphatically that Jesus went to Asia and studied in the Tibetan monastery and all of that. You know, you, you got to take all of that with a grain of salt because there is no written records. Um, I went through the uh, Book of Saints, which is rather um, authoritative in a way by Richard O'Brien, uh, to see what the other apostles uh, did and so forth and so on. And there's very, very little uh, reliable or historical information regarding any of the apostles. We know about a few of them, but uh, most of them we know almost nothing. But that's all right. Uh, they did their job and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, 
We know that Jesus began his ministry shortly after John the Baptist was arrested and imprisoned by Herod. Now, this is Herod Agrippa. Uh, you know, remember, there were seven Herods in a dynasty. Herod the Great had three sons, and one of those sons had two sons, and then one of those had another. So that makes seven in a line that ended with the destruction of uh, Israel or Jerusalem, particularly, and the temple by the Romans in the year 70 A.D. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me, there were a number of things that happened to affect not only Jesus' life, but the life of all future Christians in that time period. But after Herod uh, was imprisoned, Jesus began to take up his role because he was now baptized, and that was sort of the beginning of his role in God's plan of salvation towards the salvation of all mankind. And the baptism probably took place in the Jordan between, somewhere between Jericho and Jerusalem. Um, Now that sets up a rather peculiar question because the Jericho is not between um, <laughs> the Jordan is not between Jericho and Jerusalem. The Jordan is on the east side of Jericho. So, anyways, um, I just happen to think that since I've been there. I should know where uh, the river is, but uh, that's immaterial right now. Anyways, if that happened, the gospel tells us that Jesus then went to Galilee, which is roughly 80 to 85 miles north of Jerusalem, to begin his preaching and teaching. Now, why would he go there when Jerusalem was really the center uh, of Judaism? Anyone have an idea? Why would he go and start his public ministry in the area of Galilee? Uh, remember, it said at one point in time that he left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum, which is on uh, the shore of the uh, sea of, of Gennesaret or uh, Tiberius, or, you know, it's gone by so many different names. There are a couple reasons. Howard? Well, yes, that's part of the reason. There was a lot more Gentiles or non-Jewish people in the northern part of Israel. Uh, many people think that Nazareth was just a little uh, village uh, that nobody paid attention to, and that's not quite true. Uh, the trade route from the east, that is from all the way from China through Macedonia 
and through what is now uh, northern Turkey, etc., are cut right through the northern part of Israel on its way to the Mediterranean Sea. And so that part was populated by a number of people who were not Jewish. And, and even the Jewish people were more prone to accept new ideas and new concepts. So it wasn't only because Jesus was raised in that part of the country, but he was more familiar with the people and the kind of people that were up there. And of course, part of his mission was to spread it not only to the Jewish people, but to the non-Jewish, or people who we call Gentiles. All right? Uh, and by the way, I used to have a, a lady in one of my classes many years ago who could not understand who the Gentiles were. Obviously, anyone that was not a Jew to the Jewish people was considered a Gentile. And that was sort of a derogatory term um, at that time. It is not now, but it was at that time. It was, they, they weren't, you know, they were not one of us, so to speak. Remember, we've talked in the past about how Judaism was very exclusive, an exclusive community because it had the one true God over them. Of course, that's not what God wanted, but that's the way it turned out. And so anyone that was not a Jew was a Gentile. Um, so this, la this lady could not understand. She thought it, it had to be a specific nationality. Well, it isn't a nationality. It's sort of a generalized uh, term. So we started calling her Gentile Jenny. <laughs> and after a while, she kind of, she didn't like it in the beginning, but after a while she, she kind of realized that that was sort of an endearing term. Okay. Yes, Marge? What would be the difference between a kosher, kosher Jew and the other Jews? Well, a kosher Jew would be an Orthodox Jew who okay. stuck really strictly to the rules. Yeah. What about the, the first, uh, the wedding feast of Cana? Yes. What about? Well, he started his uh, ministry in Galilee, right? So I think that's the beginning of his public ministry. Well, we don't know because we don't know. You see, uh, the reason why we don't know for sure, and I assume that would be much later because it also claims that his apostles were with him at that wedding feast, which implies it would have been later. Okay. Now, that's one of the things I want to get to. When you read the call of the, of the apostles from Matthew's Gospel, it sounds like Jesus is walking along you know, the shore and said, I'd want you and you and you to follow me. You know, as if, and it sounds as if, there had not been any interaction between Jesus and these fellows that were called. And of course that's not true, because if you read a little bit more uh, in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew, it talks about how his fame spread throughout all the land of Israel and into Syria 
and neighboring countries. Well, that would imply that these apostles had some knowledge and interaction with Jesus prior to being sort of elevated or called out of the large group of disciples that had developed over a period of time, and they were now being called to a special role. Does that make sense? You know, because I've often wondered years ago when I was starting out in teaching, is how would these fellows, Peter and Andrew, James and John, both uh, two groups of brothers, how could they just leave everything and follow Jesus? You know, it would be like me walking out on the parking lot there and saying, you know, you're going to London tomorrow. Well, even if this person would love to go to London, you know, it takes a little bit of planning and uh, looking ahead and preparation, etc., etc. Well, these guys, you know, it, as you read it, uh, it looks like they just dropped everything and went off. Well, no, I don't think that that's the way it happened. Uh, but you see, the gospel writers were not interested in those kinds of details. They wanted to just get to the point and give you the bare necessities, so to speak, and that leaves the rest of us hanging to think about it. But that's one of the things you should be doing. When you read scripture, you shouldn't just read the words and expect the whole meaning to jump out at you. You've got to spend a little bit of time in thinking about it and wondering and doing some uh, cross-reference checking and read the footnotes in your Bibles. Don't ignore the footnotes, particularly in the um, study Bible, the one that I highly recommend. The footnotes are very, very uh, good in explaining and making things a little clearer. <laughs> Pardon me. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about, if I find it, are the apostles. Jesus chooses 12 men out of his large number of disciples or those people who have been following him uh, from village to village or who even though they may not be actually traveling, uh, that whenever Jesus comes to uh, their town or nearby, uh, they go out to meet him and listen to what he has to say. And so out of this group, Jesus 12 chooses these 12. Peter is always mentioned first in all the lists of uh, the apostles. Peter is mentioned first, even though it probably was not uh, his role to be the first or the head of the group until later. But you have 
two brothers and perhaps two sets of brothers and then perhaps a third. But that's a little questionable. I'll just go down a little bit so that we know something about it. Peter and his brother Andrew. So you have one set of brothers there. Peter and Andrew were brothers. They were both fishermen. Now, that doesn't imply that they were uh, poor or anything. If they had their own boat, they were probably fairly well off because uh, fishing out of uh, the Sea of Galilee or Lake Genezareth or whatever you want to call it, it goes by several names in different writings, uh, was very profitable. Uh, you have another group of brothers, set of brothers, I should say, James and John. Now, these four, particularly Peter, James, and John, were the most prominent of the 12 apostles. They are mentioned uh, frequently in, in different parts of the scriptures. Okay. John, in this case, was John the Evangelist, who uh, wrote not only the fourth gospel, but he also wrote three uh, letters, and it is uh, presumed that he was the author of the book of Revelation. It is also considered that he was the only one who actually wrote those letters and gospels and Acts of the Apostles that, no, he didn't write the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, letters and uh, the Gospel and the Book of Revelation. He's the only one that probably actually did his own writing. And that is probably because he lived much longer than all of the others. He lived in the area of uh, of the um, Jerusalem and then in Ephesus in Turkey uh, and had time to think about the teachings and the purpose of Jesus' life and what he did and what he said. Whereas the others all went off because actually that was part of their commissioning where Jesus says at the end of, gospel, of Matthew's Gospel, Go forth and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. All right, so baptism is essential, a baptism of initiation into what we call the kingdom of God, and I'll get into that a little later. All right, so you have two sets of brothers there. Then you have Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew uh, goes by a couple names. Um, you have Matthew, the evangelist, but then Matthew goes by a couple names also. I read just uh, yesterday or the day before that some people think that Matthew was the name of the author of the gospel, but Levi was the actual person who provided the information and the teaching. Well, we don't know that for sure. Uh, you have to sort of take that with a grain of salt also. Most people consider Matthew as being the author of the first gospel, and we're just going to leave it at that. 
Thomas. Well, we all know Thomas as being the doubting Thomas, but we don't really know much about him otherwise, except that he was one of those who questioned Jesus uh, at the Last Supper. Marty? Um, except for Matthew, it's on, and and perhaps John, uh, it's questionable. Yeah, it's questionable whether they were able to read and write, and that's not a put down uh, type of question because it was uncommon to have you know a group of twelve who could read and write, yeah, at that time and culture. Howard? Yeah, but after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit would provide them with the knowledge. To knowledge, to but not necessarily being able to read and write, no. You don't think the Holy Spirit had that power? Well, yes, I think he had the power. I just don't think it happened that way. Remember, uh, writing. Writing was a privilege of the wealthy and the educated. It was also, and a lot of people never think about it this way, it also was a profession. Scribes were a profession, a highly uh, respected profession. In fact, I've read, a, if you want to read another interesting book, and this is just sort of sidelined, read uh, Gutenberg's Apprentice. It is a, a sort of a historical novel uh, about Gutenberg who uh, discovered or, or invented the printing press in the, I think it was the 13th century, 13th or 14th century. All right, now this is a, over well over a thousand years later. He had to, and, and he couldn't get anybody interested to come in and help him. So he had to do all of this on his own. And he thought, well, even the church wouldn't help him because they were afraid of what would be printed and a lot of nonsense uh, or wrong things would be printed. And therefore, they forbid him to print anything on his new printing machine. So what he did was decided to print the Bible, which he took from the German and printed it. But he had to do it in secret. And his employees had to be sworn to secrecy to be protected. Uh, it's a fast fascinating book, and uh, I highly recommend it. The details are probably fictional to a point, but the characters in it are real. In the back of the book, they will actually talk about the characters used and in the book and explain a little bit about them uh, outside of the story itself. But this is 13th or 14th century, and one of the problems that people did not want him to invent this uh, printing press was it would put the scribes that were a highly regarded profession out of business. 
Right? Yeah. And so the same thing holds true way back at the time of Christ. All right. Uh, reading and writing was a very highly regarded profession. All right. So we don't know exactly who wrote uh, most of the Gospels for sure. We don't have any uh, historically reliable uh, information on that. But that's not important. I, I always say it doesn't make any difference if Scarlett O'Hara or somebody said something that was uh, truly valuable. Why disregard it simply because she was a fictional character? And that's true for anyone. Uh, what difference does it make who said it or who wrote it if it's meaningful, uh, true and meaningful? Why not uh, accept it? All right. So we have another, <coughs> excuse me. We have another uh, apostle called Thaddeus, but he also goes by another name, and that is Jude. Then you have a second James, not James and John, but another James, often called James the Lesser, uh, because he was of less importance than James the Greater, who became the Bishop of Jerusalem after most of the apostles left Jerusalem uh, during the persecution, and it was James the Greater who was beheaded by Herod in the year 42 AD. Okay. Then you have another Simon. You know, remember Peter's name was Simon and it was changed by Jesus to Peter. So, but you have another Simon and virtually nothing is known about him. Uh, and then of course you have Judas and we all know a little bit about Judas. Uh, the poor guy was, and this is a questionable thing. Was he uh, designated or predestined to do what he did? Uh, the church does not believe in predestination, so that leaves it up to, the, did the devil make him do it uh, or what? He did have the ability to say no and so forth, but he did carry his um, traitorous deeds out anyways. So you have to kind of pray for Judas because he uh, got a bum rap, but it might have been his own acceptance. Uh, so the, the apostles were all a b bunch of sort of a motley crew, you might say. And why? It's not so much who they were, but why would Jesus pick these kinds of people rather than the best, most educated people he could find? Anyone have any good reasons or ideas? Uh, well, that would have been a good reason, perhaps, and easier in many ways. Uh, but he wanted to know that he wanted to know that his teaching on salvation through him was for everybody 
even the lowest of the low. He wanted people to know that he was not just choosing the hoi polloi or the, you know, the aristocratic people, uh, because that would show a different side of him that was not true. Jesus chooses everybody. God loves everybody, regardless of what they do. They, he may not like what they do. He may punish what they do, but he still loves them. And he wanted his apostles to be from the lower class so that people would take them seriously once they started teaching and once they started um, working miracles because most of the apostles were able to work certain miracles to draw attention to what their teachings were and to back up what their teachings were in the same way that Jesus did. Remember the man with the withered hands when he um, was presented with this man, he said, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees started to grumble about who can forgive sin uh, but God alone. Of course, that's true. Uh, or God might designate who can forgive sins. So Jesus says to him, what is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to say arise and walk or, uh, you know, hold out your hand and it will be cured or any of the other uh, miracles that he worked. Uh, you had to have something of that kind to support your statements and your teachings. And miracles, of course, were the most notable, the most reliable. Uh, that's questionable, Bob. Uh, the question is, is it possible that some of these apostles had prior experiences that would be helpful in this uh, line of new work. It's kind of doubtful because fishermen, you know, four of them, five of them, really, well, four of them that we know of for sure were fishermen, and it's unlikely that they had any prior experience. Um, Matthew was a tax collector, which, of course, uh, was considered uh, an outcast by most of the Jewish people because he had to be in collaboration with the Romans in order to collect taxes because it was for the Romans that he was collecting the taxes and he would make whatever he could over and above what they required. So, uh, Thomas... Yes, Thomas, we, we don't know who his twin uh, was, no. no. But he was a twin. Well, he was a twin, yes, Thomas was, yeah. He's also called the Doubting Thomas also um, because of the major faux pas he made after the resurrection, yes. Uh, but I think that points out uh, that, you know, they're all human. And we all have doubts at times. And it's not wrong to doubt, but it's wrong to leave the doubt there, particularly when it's uh, 
about some aspect of your faith. To leave a doubt there and just let it simmer um, is wrong. You should do some examinations or research or whatever it takes to clear the doubt up. Yes? Say blessed are those who haven't seen but believe, because that's all us. Yes, yes, yes. And it, 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 good. That's a good point. Where Thomas is doing some doubting, and then Jesus appears to him to clear up the doubt. He says, as Marjorie pointed out, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe through faith. But one of the subjects I really want to get into is what is discipleship? Now, the word disciple comes from the Latin for discipula, which means student. And it's, it's correct in believing that many of the people of uh, the early times that began to take hold of what Jesus was saying or preaching or teaching or the miracles and so forth, and they wanted to be followers. Well, a true disciple is more than just a follower. A true disciple is not only one who believes in Jesus, but has experienced Jesus in some special way. And then develops a love for Jesus, for God, in a very special way. And then that love turns into wanting to do something to show, to share with others, to show that they are followers of Jesus and want to love. And that is what this diagram that Hopefully you all have a copy of, okay? To be a true disciple is more than just being a follower. You have to have some knowledge of God through Jesus Christ and have experienced him. And that then is the basis for love. And what is love in this context? We are not talking about romantic love. That is part of it, but that is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about family love. That is also part of it. But what we're talking about is something deeper, broader. And that is agape love. Love that is unconditional that loves everybody. That doesn't mean that you have to love what people do, but you have to love the basic person, giving them the dignity of being a creation in the same way that you are. Very important. And this is what Jesus is asking of all of us, to be true disciples. But that means that we have to have a knowledge of him and an experience 
of his presence within us. And if you say, well, oh, I don't want to bother with all of that, then what you're really saying is, I don't want to be a disciple of Christ. And I think that that is wrong because it's a misunderstanding, right? This is something that God wants of each of us to be a true disciple who will be willing to experience him and then reflect his love, his teachings, his way of life to everyone else. And how do we do that? First of all, we respect the dignity of the individual. And then there will be some way, somehow, that we will be able to interact with others through compassion, through forgiveness, through integrity, through humility, through charity, and through understanding. These are only a few. There are other virtues as well. And the whole aspect of what is agape love. Anyone have a disagreement or a a thought other than that? Or a question regarding that? Because having a sense of love is extremely important to carrying out the work of discipleship, the responsibilities of discipleship. And again, if you say, oh, I don't want to get involved in all of that, then what you're really saying is, I don't want to follow Christ. I don't want to do what he's asking me to do or asking everyone else. He's not asking me, of course. That's an unfortunate way of looking at it. And yet, I've heard people say that. I just don't want to be bothered. I just want to do my little thing, and that should be enough. God is saying that's not enough. To be a true follower of Christ is more than just a knowledge and going through the formalities of that is required by the the Catholic Church. There's far more to it than that. And when you do, you will realize and understand and experience the benefits of being a true disciple of Christ. Things that are major problems to some will be much easier to accept and deal with. They don't always go away, but they'll be much easier to accept and deal with. Experiences that are good, experiences that are good will be twice as much. I always say that when you love, difficult things are only half as bad. Good things are twice as good. Doris? And if we look at this person, they irritate us, they, we don't like them, we think 
they're still a child of God. Yes. As, as am I. Yes. So it makes it a lot easier to love people. Yes, you're right. Very good point. Um, as Doris, Doris pointed out, we can't always love everybody as if they were bosom buddies. I mean, that's just asking too much to be, you know, and we are human. We are not miracle workers. We're just human. But if you truly love God and you operate in understanding uh, respect for the individual or the integrity of the individual, then you know that that person is built, born, raised, whatever, in the likeness of God as you are. And therefore, you have to treat them with some dignity or respect. And even though you may not be able to accept <clears throat> their point of view or their style of living, you have to accept them the fact that they are a human being and deserve a certain amount of respect. I'll give you a little example. Uh, the other night I was uh, walking through my apartment and I saw uh, my apartment building and I saw this man who I knew had an apartment down the hall, but he was sitting out in the hall looking like the weight of the world was upon him. <laughs> and so I stopped and I called him by name and I said, is there something wrong? Can I help you? And he looked at me like saying, what business is it of yours? Uh, so I said, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to disturb, I just wanted to help. And then I moved on. What are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do with that attitude? Because he was not interested in sharing his uh, burden, whatever it might have been, with me. And um, I did what I could. And let it go at that. Um, so that is kind of the way we should look at what discipleship is. We may not always succeed in wanting to help others, but we should be willing to try. But there is no one discipleship. For example, you've got the monk and you've got the pastor. Two obvious disciples who work in two completely different ways. Yes. So, which discipleship for one person is not necessarily discipleship for somebody else. That's understandable. Yes, we are all different. You know, you you can have, I'm going to put it in a, a more understandable way. You can have saints in both Republicans and saints and Democrats. <laughs> oh, no, don't go too far. I'm sure there are saints in both groups. Uh, all right. More in one than the other. Oh, of course, of course, yes. Marty says more in one than, than in the other, yeah. 
Yes, Jennifer. No matter what type of disciple we are, we all have that basic compassion and wanting to help and serve. And yes. Right. Those are the qualities. Yes. Uh, we just do it in different ways. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, we're human. We are not perfect. Well, except a couple of us, you know. Uh, but the whole idea is we do have our weaknesses, our biases, and we have to deal with them, but we cannot force them or uh, shove them onto others. Part of being a disciple is we have to know, uh, you know, our limitations and the fact that we have to accept others for whom they are, whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not. That is one of the very difficult things that I think a call to discipleship has to confront, is the fact that we are so different in many different ways, and we don't all look alike or think alike uh, or have the same uh, biases or whatever. And so therefore, it requires a little bit of knowledge of who we are and how we should act when we are interacting with others. In other words, Christ must come first and be reflected in our interaction with others. Uh, and then we go from there. I don't want to belabor the point, but you all understand really what this is all about. And I hope that you'll spend some time thinking about it. Because discipleship is stream extremely important. This is part of the whole idea of being a Catholic and being a Christian. No difference. We are Catholic Christians uh, only to indicate that we are not uh, part of another denomination, but we are Catholics. And it's important that we be proud of that and be willing to share it with others, not beat them over the head to make them, you know, whether we want or not, they want it or not, but to be willing to share our faith with others. That is part of discipleship. This idea of sharing your faith. Again, it is not, you don't have to go up and down the street, uh, peddling, you know, little pamphlets or handouts or tracts as they're often called. But it's when you have an opportunity, uh, you have to, have, the other thing is, you can't ignore an opportunity also. Saying, oh, I don't want to get involved. Being involved is extremely important and it is part of the responsibility of discipleship. I have a real difficult time with some of these, uh, mass uh, tragedies that are happening here uh, caused by one individual who 
seems to be working or being um, the only person involved. Uh, somebody that, you know, has several rifles or guns or with them and, and creates all kinds of uh, havoc. Somebody has to know about what he is doing or what he's capable of doing or what he has the power to do. And that person has a responsibility to make it known to proper authorities. Now, to sit back and say, well, gee, I don't want to get involved. You are involved already if you know about it. And if you can do something about it, then you have a responsibility. That is part of being a disciple. You can't just say, well, I don't want to get involved because I don't know that person, or I might offend that person, or I like his mother and father, or some darn thing like that. There's more to it than that. If you know that something or someone is about to create mass havoc in some way, you've got to do something about it. You can't remain silent. Uh, any any doubts or any questions about that? No, uh, previous question. What was Levi's other name? Matthew. Okay. Yeah. He's only Levi, I believe, in the Gospel of Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. When you say disciple, does that mean you are a Christian? You are a follower of Christ? Yes. Exclusive. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, what would, how would you, how could you not be exclusive if you were a follower of Christ? I mean, when you say disciple, that means you are a Christian. You bet. And you are a follower of Christ. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, a Buddhist or a Jew cannot be a disciple of Christ. No. Well, not a disciple of Christ, but could be a disciple of God. In their way, perhaps. Yes, they may be thinking of that. But, you see, a Buddhist... A Buddhist is not a religion. Is not a religion, yes. So you gotta, you got to be a little careful careful there. No, but you can't be straddling the fence with, you know, maybe I'm on this side or maybe I'm on that side or I'll take a little bit of both. No, no, no. I'm just saying good people can be disciples of God even if they're not Christian. Well, I guess that's possible, yeah. Um, because you, you have people like Mormons and Seventh-day Adventists and uh, some of these other Christian denominations, um, you know, they say they're following uh, God, but are they following Christ and his teachings? Yeah, that's questionable. Okay. So, you know, I, I am not a miracle worker. I can't answer all the questions that you might like. Yeah. In the way you might like. Yes. Any other questions? Yeah. All right. Like I said, I hope you'll spend a little time uh, between now and next week and uh, think about it, because next week we are going to start, uh, and our main subject will be the Sermon on the Mount.
Now, the Sermon on the Mount starts out with the Beatitudes. It's chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. It starts out with the Beatitudes. But the Beatitudes are sort of the rewards uh, or the carrot before the stick. Um, and are really the result of being good disciples. And we will look at those after we discuss, discuss the major topics of the Sermon on the Mount. And there are three major topics. I think you have that in your handout for for today. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> the roles, and we've talked some about that today, the teachings and our actions as to how we respond to many of the things that are taught. Now, you have to look at, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you have to be somewhat familiar, familiar with Jewish laws. Because what Christ is doing in this, these teachings is changing the depth or the meaning of certain Jewish laws. And that's part of why he got into such hot water with his Pharisees and the Sadducees. Changing the law because he was not an educated person. He was not a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He was not sanctioned by any of the temple rulers or the scribes. Um, and therefore he didn't have, according to the Jewish people, he didn't have the right to say some of the things that he did. So that got him, got him into a lot of hot water. But I think in the changes that he is making or demanding, he is correct. Remember, Christianity came out of Judaism and actually is an elevation or fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. And that is the way you have to look at many of these changes. That Jesus has the right because he's God. He has the right because they fulfill the more perfect meaning of all of these teachings. So when you read this, keep that in mind. It is something that had to be done, and Jesus fulfilled that. Uh, so the Sermon on the Mount is extremely important. It's probably the most famous passage in the New Testament, known and understood, at least in a minimal way, by most Christians. Okay. The other thing that you have to kind of keep in, in mind uh, yeah. old age, you know, I think is uh, my my thought just just a, yes, senior moment, yes, yeah. Uh, What's that? Well, 
it's not there right now, so I can't keep it there. <laughs> uh, oh well. Uh, oh well. I'm I'm only human, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say something, and it, it, I'm sure it was very important. But, um, anyways. Uh, the, the Sermon on the Mountain the Mount is extremely important. It probably was not written, or, or let's say it was not delivered as it appears. It says that Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down and began to teach. And then it comes out with the Beatitudes and then each of the subjects here listed here. It probably did not happen that way. You have to remember that Jesus went from town to town teaching the same thing. And so the people who wrote the Bible or provided the information for the Gospels heard this same thing over and over and over as they went from town to town. So that when you go to write it down, it's a composite of probably many speeches. And there's nothing wrong with that because we wouldn't want to have the Bible being, you know, three or four times the length that it is with a re repetition of the same stories over and over and over. Uh, there were no recordings in those days. And so the people that wrote the Gospels had to condense a lot of different teachings into what appears to be one. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. A composite of many teachings. Okay. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is sort of divided into five books. We just completed one really with uh, what is discipleship. And it opens the door to the next one, which is considered the uh, book of, of teachings. Okay. It says here, in this extensive material, there are five great discourses of Jesus, each concluding with the formula or the statement, when Jesus finished these words, uh, he went and did something else. Or you will see in Matthew's Gospel, it written several times, Jesus did or said such and such in order to fulfill a prophecy of the Old Testament or the statement of the Old Testament. One of Matthew's intentions in writing, as he did, and portraying Jesus in this particular way is the fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament. Um, and he does that rather clearly, but he wants you to get that message. So I hope you all do. Uh, in reading Matthew's Gospel, you will see that statement written several times in there. This is done to fulfill a passage, and then he will give you either a quotation or the passage uh, number. Okay. Uh, so these five discourses <coughs> are... Uh, 
the one on, on uh, discipleship, then the one on teaching, the one on missionary, and then the last one will be on the uh, the last times. And when we get into chapters 24 and 25, it's also called the small book of Revelation or eschatological. Church, church order. Church order. You have uh, the book on discipleship, the Sermon on the Mount, the missionary discourse, the parable discourse, and church order, or the last last uh, days. Okay. So, when you look at the Gospel of Matthew and these five books, they are not, you know, individual books like like this. They are just collections of similar teachings all put in a nice, neat order. The Sermon on the Mount is one of those. It covers three chapters, five, six, and seven. And at the end of chapter 7, you'll see where it says, this was done or said, uh, I better get the, the exact so I don't have anybody come up and says, well, that's not exactly what it says. When Jesus finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So he taught in a different way uh, because he was not an educated person. He was not educated in the traditional way of the scribes or the Pharisees or Sadducees. All right. He taught with authority because he was God. And that was important. And they recognized that. And that is what caused them to follow Jesus because he taught with such sincerity and not the biases that the Sadducees and the scribes had. (laughs) Excuse me. Any questions? Yes, Joe. I don't have a question, but I'm curious about the answers to your questions on this paper. Uh, the difference between disciple and apostle. And uh, who are the apostles of today? And anyway. All right. No, you, you're, you're right. That's why I asked, are there any yeah. questions? I want the answers. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The difference between a disciple and an apostle. All right. The word apostle comes from the Greek, which means one who is sent. And what it implies is that one who is sent directly by Jesus Christ. Now, the church uses that as the authority to designate the apostles 
as the first bishops. And because Peter is the bishop of Rome, he is then also the pope. Of course, the word pope was not used at that time and actually did not come into common use until the 5th or 6th century. All right. But Peter was always designated as the head of the apostles or the leader of the apostles. And he was given that role, uh, particularly after Jesus' resurrection. All right. When he talks about Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Later, Jesus again says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Third time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. That's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's, that I guess that, that's the explanation because we have the hierarchy. It, it is simply a one of pride. All right. Simply a one of not wanting to be told what to do. And I just got through reading a biography of Martin Luther. An extremely interesting book because it talks about the, Reform, the Protestant Reformation, which was just recognized here uh, last November as the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's uh, putting his 95 theses on the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, this was not an unusual thing. The door of the cathedral was used like a pin uh, board where you could print up all kinds of notices. So for Martin Luther to do that was not unusual. What was unusual about it, it was the first time that somebody openly criticized the Catholic Church. Now, he was a Catholic monk, Martin Luther was. And what he did was probably good because he had good intentions. Unfortunately, he got way out of hand by others who followed him uh, because once you see the, the church had such a hold on the lives of all of the people uh, that it, that was getting a little out of hand. And that was what Martin Luther was trying to criticize or was criticizing. And so uh, when he publicly did that, it allowed other people then to publicly start criticizing the church. And the whole of the church on society of its time, particularly in Central Europe, uh, started to break down. And it just got way out of hand. But what Martin Luther started to do was to correct some of the uh, excesses that the church was getting into. So in, in you know, the final analysis, I think he will be uh, exonerated and actually blessed uh, for doing that because it was something that was really needed. Uh, and he does not mince any words. He does not whitewash the Catholic Church, uh, but he does explain how Protestantism uh, developed 
from this particular incident and what it did and some of its uh, drawbacks. The whole idea of people wanting to believe what they want to believe and discarding everything else or twisting uh, the fate. They were the ones who practically tore apart uh, the mass and uh, discarded most of it. So that's why you see most Protestant denominations not having a mass. Now, the Anglicans and the Episcopalians do, but most other denominations do not. And it is because of the teachings of the people, particularly um, Wellesley and uh, Calvinism and, and so forth and so on, uh, they were the ones who uh, really tore apart uh, Catholic traditions and uh, most of our liturgies yeah, and developed their own. Uh, uh, extremely important, I think, in understanding that. Well, let's put it this way. God, in his implementation of his plan of salvation, could have done it all by himself. But that's not what he wanted. He wanted human beings to be major partners in this plan. And so you have people like Abraham and his wife, uh, Moses, Jacob, several prominent people, the, the, the uh, prophets, Samuel, uh, King David himself, and a number are prominent people that helped Jesus, or helped God, I should say, in the implementation and the further development of this plan of salvation. When Jesus came, it was the same thing. He needed and wanted people to help him so that they would take the message and spread it abroad, spread it to everyone, every part of the world. And so these are servants, or I prefer to call them partners, with Jesus in the implementation of and the furthering of this plan of salvation. But that boils down to many of us, we are called as well. Each one of us is called as part of our discipleship in furthering our knowledge and understanding and appreciation for the teachings of Christ through the Catholic Church. Now, who are the apostles of today? The bishops of the church. That's why you do not have any people outside the church being major spokesmen for the church. Okay. The church is the major speaker for God in Jesus Christ. There are no other speakers outside of the church for God today. And we should look upon our leaders within the church as such. Yes, Eleanor? I'm just curious. 
Probably. Probably, yes. Yes. Uh, and remember, at one point in time, he did write in the sand. Yeah, we don't know what he wrote, but we suspect, as I said, we don't know what he wrote, but we suspect that what he wrote was something that every man in that group understood as a sin that that particular man has committed. Because remember, that's where the famous statement is, he who has never sinned can cast the first stone. But Jesus knew that every one of those men had major sins, and that's what he wrote. Now, again, that's only a supposition. Yes, Vincent? Yes. They are all apostles. The bishops are. Yes, because they are the descendants of the original apostles. No, Christ did send them through the structure of the church. Yes. Now, let's put it this way. You have a few people like uh, Timothy, Titus, and a couple others who work very closely with some of the original apostles. They are not considered apostles, even though we often hear them addressed or called apostles. All right? But they are not technically. All right? Only through the structure of the church are the bishops considered apostles or descendants of the apostles. All right. Oh, Matthias. Matthias, yes. And did you see how they did it? They drew straws. In other words, it was all of the apostles got together and drew straws as to their selection. And that is, you know, sort of a, a rough way of saying that is that is how the bishop uh, of Rome is chosen today in the same way. Uh, going back to our question, uh, the difference between apostle and disciple. I guess we go back. All of the apostles are disciples, but not all of the disciples are apostles. Okay? It's as, it's as simple as that. Okay? The disciples, the apostles, the word apostle means one who is sent or a descendant of that. Yes, the twelve apostles, presumably, presumably, were to offset or fulfill, you might say, the twelve tribes of uh, Israel. Now, that brings up another uh, point, I think, in your question. Uh, in the Bible, it says that Jesus... Uh, went to Galilee after his baptism into and instead of uh, making Nazareth his home, he did it in Capernaum, which is the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Anybody know what that means? Okay. Canaan? No. Canaan is in one of those, yes, in, in Naphtali. When 
but again, is part of Matthew's way of saying that Jesus did something to fulfill something that was in the Old Testament. Those two uh, locations, Zebulun and Naphtali, were part of the 12 tribes of Israel when the Israelites came back out of Egypt and settled in the Promised Land. Remember, the land was distributed among the 12 tribes, and Zebulun and Naphtali were each part of the 12 tribes because that was the names of the uh, two of the sons of Jacob. Okay. Now, just coincidentally, Naphtali is a very common Italian family name. Yeah. Because it was easier for him to get his message out because the people were much more uh, open to listening to somebody that was teaching something different. And that was all part of Galilee. Uh, the northern, all the northern part of Israel in general. Whereas as you got closer to Jerusalem, the people were much more uh, orthodox and be you know, difficult for him to start teaching something different there. Let's end our class uh, and uh, with a prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for, first of all, helping me to get through it. With uh, <laughs> Thank you for many graces and blessings. Help us then to understand a little better what discipleship is all about and where do we stand in our progression into full communion with Christ himself in this whole idea of discipleship and where can we make improvements. So we ask your blessing on each of us as we go forward in our study and understanding of the Gospel of Matthew. We just give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name.